and so thankful to see all of you here with us today. It's great. Great to have you. We'll let them kind of get uh, get gathered and spread around as the kids are moving about, so uh, that's great. Excellent. Once a year, we have a special day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, it's now generally known as Easter, although there was no such thing in the early days of the church. We are celebrating the resurrection of Christ every Sunday when we meet together because that's the day of the week that the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead. In the early generations of the New Testament church, Sunday was simply called the Lord's Day, which is a term that we still use. Uh, that's why churches have been meeting on Sunday uh, for the last 2,000 years. But on Resurrection Sunday, the Sunday that falls on our calendar, let me turn this off, all right, all right, excellent, sir. Uh, the Sunday that falls on our calendar closest to the Jewish Passover, uh, we give special thought and attention to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus Christ is not alive in heaven today, then as the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, we have, we have no hope and our faith is worthless. Specifically, 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Christ is not alive, then our preaching is worthless, our faith is empty, we are not forgiven, all who have, uh, who have died believing they were in Christ have perished, and we are the biggest idiots on the planet. Now, I know Paul didn't express it quite in those terms, but that's the idea. But Jesus Christ is alive, and he conquered death in the grave, and in so doing, he broke the power of the curse of sin, and he opened the way for us to be forgiven and to spend eternity in heaven with him. Uh, there's obviously an enormous amount of information in the Gospels regarding the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. I've spent the last 38 Easter seasons here in Hart Butte uh, speaking of various aspects of this most important event in, in world history. But today I want to share with you in the next few minutes just some thoughts that I've titled Two Unexpected Confessions. Two unexpected confessions, two statements made by people at the crucifixion that were unexpected and surprising and really quite amazing when you consider the circumstances. The first one is in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27. We're going to read, uh, hopefully, not a huge amount of information to you. I hope that you will take the time to read some of the, uh, uh, some of the passages of Scripture concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, His crucifixion and resurrection. But just one section of Matthew 27 we would like to read. I want to begin in verse 45, and I'll go to verse 54. Matthew 27 Verse 45 is where we'll begin. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Jesus is on the cross. It says, Now from the sixth hour, which is noon, until the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, or three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, 
Eli Lama Sabachthani, which is meaning or saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, which was a sedative. They figured Jesus was getting delirious. And they put it on a reed and they offered it to him to drink. The rest of them said, leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection they went into the holy city and they appeared to many so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened they feared greatly saying truly this was the son of god that is our first unexpected confession truly this was the son of god the greek word or the word feared that's in our in our greek new testament here when he says they feared greatly it's the word phobeo that we get we get our english word phobia from that it's a very strong word if you have a if you have a phobia regarding something your heart races your hands sweat you might feel shaky we might call it a panic attack If suddenly some little garter snake came crawling through our auditorium right now, we would find out who has a phobia for snakes. I hope the doors would hold everyone as they they push to get out. Or if something else happened, you know, uh, if you were at a picnic somewhere and and suddenly three or four bees showed up, you would find out who has a phobia for bees. Because phobia, or the, this word phobia, is something that just scares the daylights out of you. It makes you want to run. It makes your heart race. It makes, it makes your blood pressure spike. It makes your hands sweat. And here, these soldiers, these, these battle-hardened, highly trained military men have a panic attack when Jesus dies. Well, why? Well, the Gospel of Matthew says because they saw the things that had happened. And I want to think about some of those things with you for a moment. We cannot say for sure, but some of these soldiers in this, in this, uh, in this uh, execution squad may have accompanied the temple guards who arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They may have seen that event. They tied his hands. They marched him into Jerusalem to be interrogated by the high priest. Jesus was slapped and spit on and mocked and ridiculed for hours. When daylight came, they marched him to Pilate. Most certainly the soldiers were there. Pilate had a garrison of soldiers. Could be anywhere from 300 to 600 to, 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 uh, to guard him and to carry out his orders. A centurion was a commander of 100. And so there's a centurion here who is overseeing the execution squad who is crucifying these three men. He is, he is one of the numerous commanders in, in Pilate's garrison. So when Jesus gets to Pilate early, early in the morning, brought there by this bloodthirsty mob, those soldiers would have witnessed this event most certainly. They would have guarded Pilate. They would have been there to maintain order in the mob. They would have heard Pilate question Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, it is as you say. But then he wouldn't answer any other questions. 
So in frustration, Pilate says, don't you know I have the authority to execute you or to set you free? And Jesus says, you have no authority over me at all, except what has been given you from above. Scared Pilate to death. Pilate doesn't want to deal with it. So he sends Jesus to Herod. Again, with a group of these soldiers guarding him. A little more mocking, a little more slapping around. Pilate sends him back to, or Herod sends him back to Pilate. All Pilate wanted to see was another miracle. Hey, if you're really the Messiah, show us another miracle. Jesus didn't say a word. So after a while, they sent him back to Pilate. Pilate reminds the Jews now that, that it's his custom to pardon a prisoner during the Passover season. So he offers to release Jesus. The crowd screams for him to release Barabbas instead and crucify Jesus. Pilate's wife comes out of her quarters and tells Pilate, You better watch yourself. I've had a very troubling dream about this man last night. She says, I, I, I would recommend that you have nothing to do with this just man. We don't know what the dream was, but we know that scared Pilate even more. He's trying to figure out how to, how, how to get out of this terrible tight spot he's in. The crowds are screaming, crucify him, crucify him. But finally, Pilate just washes his hands in front of the crowd. And he says, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man. And he gives the order for Jesus to be scourged and crucified. All the soldiers are there watching this. They're observing this. They're listening to Pilate examine Jesus. They are escorting Jesus down to Herod. They're bringing him back to Pilate again. They're hearing the crowd screaming. They're trying to maintain order. And when Pilate finally gives the order for Jesus to be scourged and crucified, they time to a post, they whip him with a cat of nine tails, as it's called, a short stick about this long, eight or nine strips of, of leather, three or four feet long, with a piece of metal or bone tied in the end, and they just would lacerate a person, the entire backside of a person, from their shoulders all the way to their calf muscles. That was scourging. A lot of people died under the scourging. The Lord Jesus Christ, after he was scourged, then was marched out of the city. And all those military men have seen this over and over again. It's not the first time somebody's been scourged. It's not the first time somebody's been crucified. Murderers and certain men who tried to rise up in rebellion against Rome, they, they were scourged and crucified on a, on, on a routine basis. But something's different here. The centurion, he's marching along, they've scourged Jesus, and, and, and along the way, Jesus is speaking very graciously to the crowd. He's saying to them, don't, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. He doesn't resist, he doesn't curse the soldiers. This mock trial was unlike anything they had ever seen. There seemed to be absolutely no reason why this man should be being scourged and crucified, but they had their orders. But this guy is certainly very unlike anybody they have ever seen crucified. You know, these, these military men, these men in these execution squads with Rome, they're, they're quite indifferent to human suffering. Can you imagine pounding seven-inch spikes into another human being and just standing there for hours watching them writhe and moan in agony and torture while you play games and, get, and gamble for their clothes, sitting near the cross or standing guard nearby? I can't imagine doing that. But those soldiers did it r routinely. Human suffering was nothing to them. 
The men that they generally crucified were murderers, those guilty of armed rebellion against the government of Rome. This, but, but this man was very different. And as they hung him on the cross, they heard his word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They heard the criminal on the one side of it reviling him and mocking him. And the other criminal rebuking his friend, pleading with Jesus for forgiveness. They heard Jesus' word of assurance as he assured that dying criminal that because of his faith, he would be with him in paradise when he died in a few more hours. They heard Jesus' word of affection as he committed the care of his mother to the Apostle John. Then right in the middle of the day, the sun goes dark for three hours as Jesus suffered in agony and silence. At the end of those three hours, they heard Jesus' word of anguish as he cried out, as we read here, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You say, what's going on there? Jesus was bearing the sins of the world. God the Father, for a moment of time, had to turn his back on God the Son as he carried the weight and the burden of the sins of every human being on the planet. After three hours, daylight reappears. And with Jesus' last ounce of strength, he raises himself up and he cries out with this loud voice of triumph, It is finished! Then he quietly says, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. Then he took his last breath. And as he took his last breath, suddenly the ground begins to rumble and shake and rocks split and graves are open and, 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 and this earthquake shakes Golgotha and the whole city of Jerusalem. And at the temple, as the Passover lambs are being sacrificed right at three in the afternoon when Jesus is dying, the veil of the temple that's hiding the Holy of Holies from everyone tears in two from top to bottom, right in the presence of hundreds of priests who are, who are ministering there for the Passover. Another soldier comes running with orders from Pilate. Break the legs of those being crucified so they'll hurry up and die and can be removed from the crosses before Passover begins at six that night. Of course, you know, a person was hanging by their wrists. The spikes were driven through their wrists. Spikes were driven through their heel as their, as their feet were nailed on either side of the cross. Unlike all the, all the artwork from the last several hundred years, drove through the, the, the heel or right under the ankle. And, and as the, as, as the, the weight of the human body was pulling down on the wrist, stretching the diaphragm and the rib cage, it, and this, the loss of blood and the trauma, it became harder and harder to breathe. So you'd have to push yourself up with your, with your feet to take some pressure off of your arms so you could take a, so you could actually exhale. You could inhale, but you couldn't exhale. And then as you would be just terrible pain shooting through your ankles, you would drop back down. It would be hard to breathe. You'd push yourself back up. And remember your back and the whole back side of you has been lacerated by the scourge. So when they come to break their legs, what's going to happen is they can no longer push themselves up to breathe. And in a matter of about a half an hour, they would be dead. And so they run with these orders from Pilate. All oh, the Jews don't want these guys hanging on the cross. Passover is going to start at 6 o'clock tonight. And right, right at sundown, so, so just break their legs so they'll hurry up and die. So they take a big sledgehammer and they smash their shins on both legs. Goes to the next criminal, smashes his shins on both legs. And through the trauma and, and, the, and the, the crashing and the, the blood loss and all of that, those men will be dead soon. He comes to Jesus and he's not moving. And he's not breathing. 
So he takes a spear and he jabs it into his side. Out gushes blood and water. Yes, Jesus is dead. And of course, that soldier had no idea he was fulfilling another Old Testament prophecy written hundreds of years before the death of Christ that even when Jesus was crucified, none of his bones would be broken. And so none of them were. I mean, there are so many there. There are over 300 prophecies of the death of Christ that were fulfilled at the cross. And the centurion and all the hardened men with him, overwhelmed, amazed, half scared to death, pounding hearts and sweaty hands and weak knees. They're they're standing in awe at what they have witnessed and participated in that day. And the centurion says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Why is that unexpected? Why would you think a Roman centurion, indifferent to human suffering, who's probably overseen the, the execution squad of dozens if not hundreds of people, looks at these events, as Matthew says, they saw what had happened, and they say, man, this guy must have been the Son of God. And folks, that is, that is the beginning point of faith in Jesus Christ. Recognizing who Jesus is, seeing what he has really done, that's where every person has to begin. Seeing where we are in the eyes of God and seeing where we are headed without the Lord Jesus Christ, that should give us a panic attack. And if we are so hardened that Jesus' death on the cross for us, that doesn't shake us up a little bit, we are in serious spiritual trouble. You see, being moral can keep you out of jail, but only the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ can keep you out of hell. As Jesus himself told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent on a pole in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And in that great verse that most all of you could quote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the first unexpected confession. A Roman military officer Directing an execution squad looks at the way Jesus died, looks at all the circumstances surrounding his death, and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. The second unexpected confession I'd like to read to you from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23. Gospel of Luke in chapter 23. And we are going to begin to read in verse 32. Just read a short section up to verse 47. Verse 32. There were also two others criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, where they crucified, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. 
But even the rulers with him sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing we are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have, for we receive rather the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, and here's this great confession, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, here we are again at noon, as, as, as Matthew said, there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour at three o'clock, then the sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in two, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. The radio Bible class teacher, many of you may be familiar with, Mark DeHaan, was uh, looking through an old, old Bible a number of years ago, and he found uh, some notes written on the inside of the flyleaf of this old, old Bible, and uh, he, he quoted them in, in one of his, in one of Mark DeHaan's articles, I want to share them with you, it's really a fascinating thought, the three men dying that day. He said, one man died with guilt in him and on him. A second man died with guilt in him, but not on him. A third one died with guilt on him, but not in him. You say, well, what in the world is he talking about? Let me try and explain that to you. The first one died with sin in him and on him. The first of those two thieves was executed that day, He'd been given the punishment he deserved by a judge who had the authority of the Roman Caesar. He was sentenced and he was condemned. The first thief seems to have died as an angry man. He's probably angry with himself for getting caught. He's probably angry with the judge who sentenced him. He's probably angry with all those who'd let him down along the way. He seems to be especially angry with the man named Jesus who was hanging at his side. The first thief wasn't alone in his contempt for Jesus. Others shared his feelings. It seemed to be easy to be furious with somebody who claimed to be the light and hope of the world and then was being hung like a common criminal and not even saving himself from death. Angry with Jesus for being unable to help himself or anybody else. The first thief died with his sin in him and on him. He died still carrying his own sin. As he looks at Jesus and says, Ah, if you're really the Christ, get us down from here. Very, you know, that's a, that's a very common modern attitude. If you're really God, get me out of this mess, God. If you're, if you're really God, fix this problem for me, will you? A lot of people do that. No repentance. No looking at themselves and realizing their own sin. Just an angry, arrogant, selfish demand. Fix this for me if you're really God. But no, he died with his own sin in him and the judgment for his sin on him. 
But there was the second thief executed that day. And of course, we just read his statement. As darkness is closing in, the second thief, he has a change of heart. And he turns to the first one. He says, don't you, don't you fear God? I mean, we're up here because of what we've done. We, we, we deserve this. This man's done nothing wrong. And then this, this great statement is so, I mean, when you really think through it, it is so unbelievably incredible. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That might be one of the most important conversations ever recorded in the New Testament. Because these few words tell us what the rest of the whole New Testament declares, that forgiveness of sins and eternal life will be given to anyone who will trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Nothing more, nothing less, faith alone in Christ alone determines our eternal destiny. And I want you to think about what, what did that thief actually have to believe certainly he recognized his own sinfulness he recognized Jesus innocence he recognized the authority of Jesus he calls him Lord he admitted his own sin he admitted Jesus Jesus in innocence he asked for mercy and he believed Jesus promises against all visible odds can you imagine that for a moment here I am hanging on a cross, looking at another man hanging on his cross, and I still believe he is going to get his kingdom one day, even though he's hanging on the cross right now. I said, man, that was incredible faith. Yeah, it was. Because he recognized that Jesus was not like him. Jesus was different. Jesus shouldn't be there. And whatever he had heard, and wherever he had heard it, and whatever he decided to believe in those last hours of his life, he looks at Jesus dying on the cross and says, Remember me, Lord, when you get your kingdom. When you are actually seated on the throne of Jerusalem, as you, in, in Jerusalem, as you, have, as, you, as you have preached for years, he apparently heard something about what Jesus preached. And he came to recognize who Jesus really was. And I want you to remember this too. The second thief had no time to clean up his life. He had no time to make anything right with anybody. He had no time to show up for church. He had no opportunity to get baptized. He had no, no chance to do any extra good deeds. He's hanging on the cross hours away from death. And when that soldier comes with that gigantic sledgehammer, smashes his shins, he's dead in a half an hour probably. And knowing that, he still gives us this picture of what it takes to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a simple but incredible expression of faith. And Jesus Christ assured him of his forgiveness. So the second thief died with sin in him, his own sin, but not on him. Because the judge of heavens, of the heavens, had, had lifted the guilt from the second thief's shoulders and placed it on Jesus Christ, our sin bearer. Then, of course, you know the only person left is Jesus he died with all of our sin on him, but no sin in him. He shouldered the guilt of the world that day. He died with the weight of the world's sin on him, but not the slightest wrong in him. And three days later, he arose from the dead to show that his death, tragic as it was, was not a mistake. 
with a nail-scarred, resurrected body, Jesus gave hundreds of his disciples all the evidence they needed to believe that he had taken their place. He was with them on this earth for 40 days, teaching them the judgment of God they all realized had fallen on Christ instead of on us. So those two great confessions, unexpected, coming from unexpected people, not from the priests, not from the religious leaders, not from the nice guys, from a Roman centurion, and from a guy who's probably a murderer. When he calls them criminals, he doesn't mean he stole somebody's horse. He means they, they killed people. They robbed them and killed them. So from a murderer and a battle-hardened Roman centurion, you see two amazing confessions. The first one, recognizing who Jesus was, the Son of God, or the first one. The second one, recognizing what Jesus did. The holy, sinless Son of God, innocent, the just for the unjust. And I want to close with one verse of Scripture, 1 Peter 3.18. Just going to read one phrase of 1 Peter 3.18. that kind of summarizes all that we preach, all that we believe, all that you must understand in order to come to Christ. 1 Peter 3.18. won't even read the entire verse, just the first half of the verse. If you're a Bible highlighter, underliner, marker, I would encourage you to mark this verse. 1 Peter 3.18, just the first half of the verse. Look at this incredible, powerful theology that Peter preaches, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Jesus doesn't have to suffer over and over and over again. He suffered one time and he paid for our sin. Jesus Christ also suffered once for sin, and that's the next phrase, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. One man died with sin in him and on him, because he rejected Christ. The other man died with sin in him. He had his sin, but no sin on him because he was forgiven. Jesus died with all of our sin on him, even though he had none in him. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today? If you do, praise God. Are you living for Him? Are you doing what you ought to be doing to, 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 so that you so that people know that you are a child of God? Are there things you need to make right with God? If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you're not absolutely certain that, that you know Him, you have to do what the second thief did. You have to recognize who Jesus was, and you have to plead for His mercy and His forgiveness. And He'll give it to you. Just as he did that thief. Today, today, you'll be with me at paradise. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Hallelujah for that. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to belong to you. We are so thankful that we don't have to try to buy our way into heaven or earn our way into heaven or try to achieve some 
perfect holy standard that we know we can't live up to in order to get to heaven. We simply have to express our faith in you, recognize our sin, recognize your holiness, realize who you are and what you've done on our behalf. You died, you were just, you were righteous, we were unjust, unrighteous, and you died once for all so that you could bring us to God. Lord, I pray for my friends here, I know many of them know Christ as their Savior, I pray that they would live a life that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus to give back to you for all you've done for us. And Lord, if there's anyone here who isn't sure that they know Christ, I pray they would humble their hearts and bow the knee to Jesus, admit their sin, and ask Him for forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.